0: I want to minister tonight in a, in an Advent, in our Advent season, and, and kick off what will be several weeks of anticipation. Uh, Advent is arrival, and the church world around the world celebrates from this moment until Christmas uh, the arrival of Jesus, both in in really in, in two horizons. One in a reflective horizon, in that we're looking back on the first arrival of Jesus and how Israel anticipated it, how the prophets prophesied of it. And then, of course, we are looking for an arrival in the, in the future uh, th- that Jesus arrives, having arrived and arrives. And that really shouldn't be shocking to us because we are a people who are, um, from the beginning of the text, await, awaiting people. We wait. patience. Jesus said, in your patience you possess your souls. And so patience is a part of who we are and waiting is a part of who we are. So I title this lesson tonight. It doesn't look like any kind of Advent title, but I title it Wait For It, um, partially in honor of a pretty good song from the musical Hamilton, um, Wait For It, but also because that's what we do at Advent is we wait for it. We have waited for it. We continue to wait for it. Waiting is part of what we do. I want to jump right in. Let's jump right into some text. Let's work our way through the, the timeline of the Old Testament without exhausting you. We won't hit every scripture. Some of it will just tell. Uh, but I do want to sort of to bookend this because I think the Bible does that beautifully. It sort of bookends this idea of awaiting people having received the consummation of what they're waiting for. And then a new people, resurrection people, us, because the the biblical story isn't us at first, but we get included in the biblical story. And so a resurrection people come along waiting as well. And we have a future consummation of all things. Uh, We have the future apokatastasis, that Greek word for the restoration of all things. We know because we are a resurrection people that this isn't the end. And, And the fact that we are resurrected gives us that hope that there's more. And so we read of a waiting people, we become a waiting people. So let's start in the beginning, where God speaks directly or explicitly to the serpent and sort of indirectly to His own fallen creation in Genesis 3.15. This is the advent kickoff verse of the Bible. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And even as you can see in our new King James rendering of this, where we put capital letters on the pronouns that we, that we give to Jesus. We do that because we're looking in the rearview mirror at this. We've, we've already been to the cross, we've been to the resurrection, we've seen Christ, and so we see the fulfillment. So we get capital S on seed, and we get capital H on the, the His heel at the bottom. That's not in the Hebrew. Um, it wasn't even in the English for a long, long time. I'm not, I'm not condemning it. I'm, I'm just trying to point out that, that this verse for the people of the Old Testament world didn't speak of what we know as Jesus. They didn't know who it spoke of, but they knew it spoke of someone. They knew it spoke of a him, a his. Um, we, we have no reason to believe that the Eve, the Eve in the story doesn't think it's one of her boys. That she doesn't think it's Cain. In fact, she names Cain, Cain, which means gotten. And then she names Abel, Abel, which is vanity. So she's already got her one and the second one she don't need. (laughs) It's kind of an indication there in the Hebrew that she didn't realize that she's become a person of waiting. And the waiting is not the first kid you have is going to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so once it's not Cain and it's not Abel, then maybe it's Seth. And then once it's not Seth and Eve dies without the fulfillment of that verse, the peoples of the Bible, the population of this cast of characters in the Old Testament, fills up quickly with people who have waiting in their heritage because they have that in their heritage. That's the verse. Our whole, really, our whole biblical story kicks off with that concept of God speaking into the human, the human family, both speaking to that which curses us, the serpent, that which is our enemy, the snake, and into us directly and saying, I'm going to separate the snake from my people. I'm going to separate That's enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be this spread between the evil and the wickedness of this world and my people. Keep that phrase, my people, in your mind because God uses my people over and over in the Bible. Israel becomes my people, his people. And so God says, I'm going to put a separation between that which is evil and my people. You could even say, I'm going to put a separation between that which is the world and my people. And then he's coming. He's coming. And when he gets here, well, he's going to bruise your head. And he's pointing, of course, at evil, not just a snake, but evil, the system of the world. He's going to bruise the head of the systems of this world. And all that the systems of this world can do is trip him, just bruise his heel. It it won't be able to conquer him. He will, he'll put it under his feet. This is where we get under his feet imagery when we get deeper into the New Testament. We see that in the rearview mirror. We see that as Christians. We know that's Jesus. But just imagine if you're the, the people of the Bible, the people of the word who are using that as your, as, as your sort of touchstone scripture. The thing that you have in mind. He's coming. He's coming. Whatever this world has, the snakes of this world, they're going to lose. He's on his way. We don't know when he's going to get here. And it never got here quickly. Nothing in the Old Testament story ever happens quickly. Um, this is the encapsulation of every promise in the Bible is encapsulated in Genesis 3.15 and yet it becomes a wait text. Like for instance, uh, Lamech names his son Noah, believing that Noah will be the one who who will free his people, redeem his people, save his people. And he does, but it takes 600 years, six centuries of waiting before baby Noah becomes the Noah that rides Noah's ark and delivers his family. When Abraham enters the scene, Genesis in in the 15th chapter, when Genesis really starts to become not just in this expansive story of creation, but this story of a people. Uh, Abraham has to wait 25 years before the promised seed, Isaac. Uh, When Isaac comes along, uh, he waits another 20 years before he has Jacob and Esau. When Jacob grows up, he waits seven years to marry his bride, only to realize he got Lied to, and has to work seven more years for his bride, the bride that he really wants. Um, our character Naomi from this last Ruth study—Naomi loses everything that she has. She goes into the foreign country. She comes back with a daughter-in-law that's useless, for all intents and purposes, because the daughter-in-law nobody's going to want the daughter-in-law. She's a Moabitess. And she's so upset about it, she comes back bitter. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. God took everything from me. There's no hope, no future. And then, and then you get Boaz and Boaz marries Ruth and they have a baby. But that's not even the one. That baby has to have a baby that has to have a baby that has a baby. And you get just generation after generation after generation of waiting and waiting and waiting. And we're waiting on David to show up. And, in, and in the, if you're walking through this slowly in the scriptures, the waiting is like running through sand. It's like you think you're getting somewhere and then you don't. Oh, we, now Hannah comes along and she's barren. And we don't even understand what she's doing in the story. And she begs for a child and she gets one and she gives him to the Lord. And little Samuel grows up in service of the temple. And Samuel lives two generations. He's an old man when he lays an old wrinkly hand on a kid named David. And the anointing comes upon David. And David waits 40 years to get the throne because he has to go through all these shenanigans to get to the spot where he's really supposed to get. And then he gets a promise from God, your seed will always be on the throne. And that isn't fulfilled for a thousand years until the son of David is born <laughs> in the Gospel of Matthew. And so it's just this slow journey towards the next thing in the Bible to the point that if you read it in real time, it's, it can be tiring. I think there's supposed to be a bit of exhaustion that comes when you read the Old Testament. I think this is the way they supposed to be. When you read those books of the Old Testament, you're going to slog through some of it. But that's by design in a way. It's for you to realize that this is us work, waiting for, working towards, hoping for that moment when God does what He said He was going to do. We, we hold on to the fact that God said he was going to do that. Uh, and then you get to the New Testament and everything changes. I mean, I don't know if you've read straight through your Bible. If you haven't, I, I don't say this to condemn. I just say this as an encouragement. Try it one time in your life. Read Genesis to Revelation. Revelation. I know you may not want to do that for the rest of your life. It may not be the best way to read it forever, but it's worth one time in your life to treat this whole thing like it's one book and just start and work your way through. And what I have found every time that I've done that is that when you turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, you kind of go, oh. like you, you breathe this big sigh of relief because like Matthew opens with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you go, oh, here we go. Because you feel it. Now you're a Christian. So you've been waiting on him. I mean, this is why you do what you do. So you know what you're getting. But you've been looking forward to him showing up for all of this reading. <laughs> and that took you a few weeks, maybe a few months to get there. Okay, now try thousands of years to get there. And that's a mini a, a mini little metaphor for how it feels to get to that space where you know Jesus is right around the corner. And so that's why I encourage, well, there's a lot of reasons I encourage you to read it left to right, but that's one reason because there is this big like like opening a window and air comes rushing through when you get to the Jesus story. And you take you d- you breathe like the deep oxygen of God's love. Because you go, this is what it would look like if God just decided to step in here and, do, and, and show us what it looks like. And then there's Jesus. So if you get that excited, and maybe if you've never done it left to right, you don't know how excited you would get. But let me give you a prophetic word. You'll get excited when you get to Matthew. Because it's like, okay. If we get that excited, imagine those living it out who looked up and saw a baby and had the realization in their spirit, we made it for whatever reason, whether it's a shepherd having heard the angels speaking to them, whether it's the magi seeing a star that they know doesn't belong and they're going to follow it to wherever it goes, to see him and to know that you've arrived. And all of your expectations are being met in this, this baby. That's the moment. Let's let's meet a couple of those because I want to show you that in meeting them, Luke is our author. Luke's the great nativity writer. But Luke is our author. And Luke can't help it when he introduces these people who have been patient, who are so excited whether to get baby Jesus or dying Jesus, he'll do both. He can't help but tell you how patient they've been. He can't help but put into their narrative and have come out of their mouths words of waiting because it drips off of Israel's story that we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Here's one, Luke chapter 2. Verse 25, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem. Now you know if we're in Luke 2, we're real early. We're like just post-nativity. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So notice when we meet him, he's a man who's waiting for the consolation, waiting for the relief. He's been waiting for it. He's an old man, but he's been waiting for it. And Luke wants you to know that. You don't even have to know that. You know, like it's not like this, you need to know he's been waiting for the consolation, but Luke thinks you need to know because this is what the world into which Jesus came. And then we go to 29, same story. This is this Simeon now praying. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light, to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Notice the longing, the the fulfilled longing. My eyes have seen your salvation. This is it. You finally let me depart in peace. These are the words of an old man who's waited and waited and waited for this moment. And, and And in many ways, he's representative of the nation that he speaks of. And then right out the door of this is a woman. Luke picks her story up. In Luke two thirty eight, the prophetess, Anna, she comes in that instance. She gives thanks to the Lord. And she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in, in Jerusalem. And so the prophetess, Anna, grabs, sees the baby and thanks God that she got to live to see it. And who does she go tell? People who've been waiting. Because she knows if you've been waiting, you're going to be really excited about what I saw today. And Jerusalem is full of people who have been waiting. And this theme carries the gospel of Luke. These people who have anticipated the arrival of their redemption. Luke is famous for a people anticipating. Like this one from Luke 23. When Joseph of Arimathea comes to the cross, a council member, a good and a just man, he had not consented to their decision and their deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. And Luke, again, can't help but let the reader know. He himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This sort of pulsating, waiting, anticipating for God to do. And One that I didn't give you scripture on, but it's in the same gospel. Not long after this, Luke tells the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they see the they see Jesus and they're blinded and they don't realize it's him. And didn't you have you heard what happened this weekend in Jerusalem? And he he feints ignorance, you know, like he doesn't know what there, he did not you know, oh, what happened in Jerusalem? And they say, We they crucified Jesus. And we thought he would be the one who would redeem Israel. And so Luke can't help it again. He wants to show this. Anxious anticipation that the people of God had had in waiting for their Messiah, and even disappointment in thinking that maybe because he died, he wasn't the one. Um, Don't be too hard, by the way, on the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, who doubt that Jesus was the one because he has died. I know we're tough on them. go, well, they don't believe in a resurrection. Would you, (laughs) if you were in their shoes, would you believe? In a resurrection, I know it's easy for us to say we believe that someday we will resurrect. But would you believe that the Jesus you watched die such a gruesome death three days ago was actually alive and that his method of redeeming his people was to die? Just it's so off track of how we think it's it's easier for us because we are resurrected minded people, but they they've been a they've been a deliver us from Caesar people. And here's our best chance, and he's dying between heaven and earth. And we thought he was the one. He wasn't the one. We're just gonna go back to waiting. And that Jesus then disappears. This is a necessary part of the story because if we're gonna get into Advent from in, in the front, we're looking at it in the rearview mirror here for us. We're looking back on the people who was anticipating Jesus. But we're we're not just wait, We're not just talking about the Jesus that came. We're talking about the Jesus that comes again which is the front of the car, not just behind us. And if that's the case, then it's a necessary part of the story to tell you that the Jesus that resurrects is sort of in and out of this space for a little while. The Gospels say that they don't see him and then he's in the room and then he's not in the room and then they're out fishing and they notice a guy on the beach and they go eat with him and, and then he's gone and they're, they're with him and about 500 of them see this off and on for days 40 days, and then on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, they're with him one day and they can't help but say in Acts chapter one, is this the time when you finally give the kingdom to Israel? Because they've just been waiting and waiting and waiting forever, not just for the arrival of Messiah, but for the arrival of what Messiah brings. And then Jesus says, that's not up to you to know what belongs only to the Father. What you do is go and share this message, which really becomes the message for the church. It's not up to us to worry about times, dates, and seasons. And uh, we just sort of ignored that and drew up timelines of prophetic events and historical markers and what we think happens in the future. Even though Jesus said it's not yours to worry about, That's for the father, you go do what you're called to do. And then he, and, and we have acts with this dramatic ascends into heaven and, and maybe it was a vertical up or, but what really happens is Jesus is gone and he disappears. The, he who had been, you could touch him is just gone. And the encounters then That the book of Acts gives of Jesus. And it keeps giving encounters with him. But they're different encounters now. They're not touch my nail scars. They're not eating breakfast with you by the fire. They're not walking through walls. They're bright lights on the road to Damascus. Or they're the heavens opening. And Jesus descending in in a vision to Stephen as he dies. And Stephen going, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's there's a, a thin space now where Jesus occupies it as a vision, uh, uh, as the Spirit. He's even, he even. we start to call the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. We speak of Him more and more as Acts unfolds because at Pentecost, here He comes flooding His church in the form of the Spirit. And yet the church continues looking for Jesus to step back across that veil and to enter into this realm and to, to step out of the Spirit and into the natural and or at least to step the natural into the spirit. And that becomes the great mystery of the New Testament, of, of how does that look? And Paul tries by saying, don't just, make your, don't just think on the natural or the carnal or the visible, but think on the heavenly. Think on the invisible. Think on the, not just the things that are present, but also think on the things which are to come. Because someday we've, we shed, Paul calls it a tent, someday we shed this tent and then our real spirit man enters into that realm with him and, and lives with him. And Paul's language is all over the map on how he talks about it. But why wouldn't it be? Because he's, he's, he's creating a new vocabulary. No one's ever had this conversation before of what it will look like at the consummation of all things and what it will look like to, to, to step out of this and into that. And he's using language that they can understand and he's inventing words as he goes And we see the apostles doing that, trying to wrap their minds around what they've seen and what has happened. And so Paul tries to parse the difference. And one of his attempts is here in Galatians 4, when he says, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come. And remember, he's a Jew. He saw, So he's got all this Judaism in his background. He's got all this scripture in his background. He's He's waiting, just like all of his brothers and sisters. He's waiting. And he says, so when the fullness of that time had come, the wait's over, God sent his son. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And, and I don't think Paul's trying to parse the difference in a Jew and a Gentile in this particular moment. I think he's saying, because you know, we get into arguments here, so, well, you were never under the law. So did Jesus actually come for you if you weren't under the law? If you feel like the new covenant allows you to be adopted into the family, then that verse is for you. So if you can be adopted as a son, Jew or Gentile, then yes, no, you weren't under the Jewish law. But you were under some kind of law. You're under some sort of performative law, some law of human existence or law of fleshly experience or law of jumping through hoops or law pleasing God or whatever. Some of it was law put on you by society and some of it was law your parents put on you and your church put on you. And a lot of it was law you put on yourself because you put your standards and you said, if I don't reach them, I'm less than. I'm not as good as I could be. I'm not as good as I should be. And so we were all born under the law. And Jesus, and Paul's trying. I love this effort. He's trying. He goes, when the time was up, it's fullness of time. When time was up, God has this... If God has this big hourglass and he flipped over at the creation and once the last grain of sand dropped through, here comes Jesus. And I don't know. I'm, I'm just using a metaphor, or allegory, but you get the point. That's kind of what Paul's thinking is once the time was up, then God, well, he sent his son and he made her born of a woman and she was, he was born under the law. It's Paul sort of squeezing the eternal into the natural. He goes, well, he was... He's God, time's up and the wait's over. So he was born of a woman and he was born under the law. And that relieved all of us who were under the law so we could all be adopted as sons. And so the wait was over, but not really. And that's the the real beauty of Advent. That's why we keep going back to this as Christians every year because the wait was over in that they had Jesus. They they had the kingdom of God, and, and then he disappeared. And they had the kingdom of God, but it didn't look like they thought it was going to look. And there was some very disappointed people in the first century. So much so that when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But his word for ashamed is, is the same word for disappointed. For I am not disappointed with the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Why does he say that? Because he's riding into a world of disappointed people who are going, that's it? That's what we're believing for? Is I mean... Caesar's still alive. Rome is still breathing down our necks. We're no freer now than we were before he died. And in fact, it's worse. And now we're being asked to follow him and we're losing our legal protections as Jews in the Roman empire. We're, we're picking up this cult of following a resurrected man. He's not even here. And we're not even allowed to build statues to him. We don't even have a temple. we are meeting in people's living rooms. And we're real quiet about it. And we're eating his body and drinking his blood. And Paul goes, I'm not disappointed. It works. It's the power of God that saves souls, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. This is the only thing that makes a man right. The only thing that makes a man righteous is to accept that in the fullness of time, God became a man born under the law to redeem all of us who had been born under that so that we could be adopted as sons. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Am I not ashamed? Because you can't see him and yet it works. And so you get a reinstitution of a waiting that happens in the New Testament. A waiting people from the Old Testament become a Jesus people in the New Testament who then wait on that Jesus to do everything that that Jesus has promised he will do. And it's not waiting the way we think of waiting on the clock. And this is where I've made the mistake for a lot of years. And I think a lot of Christians have is that we think it's all about this cosmic watch that God's got where got these things have to tick off on the earth for God to do. The fullness of time had nothing to do with the earth. The fullness of time was God's time. It wasn't man's time. Man's time is governed by the sun. S U N God's time predates the sun. If you don't think so, go back to Genesis. God created day one, day two and day three and didn't hang the sun till day four. If nothing else, it was to show you God's days don't look like yours. So, I mean, God's had days that didn't exist on your calendar. So for God, it's not about time. It's about creation. So when God's time, God's time is up, here comes Jesus. And so what Jesus institutes is not something that he puts on pause, goes up into heaven, abandons us here to try to do it the best that we can. And then someday we'll come back to bring the fruition of no Jesus said, the kingdom is like a woman. The kingdom is like a woman that takes yeast and drops it into a loaf of bread and it spreads until the whole loaf rises. And so Jesus drops the kingdom into the earth at Calvary and resurrects as its first fruits. This is why Paul names Jesus the firstfruits. He's the first one to come out of the grave. He's the first of all of us. And the first fruits has been planted into this so that the kingdom can spread. So while we're done waiting on the first arrival, we're not, we're not done being a waiting people. In fact, waiting on his first arrival is over. You got your Bible to tell us that. But well, we are still a people in wait mode. In the parable of the talents or the minas in Luke 19, Jesus told his disciples to occupy. In that story, the master tells his servants to occupy until I come. The word for occupy is keep busy. Some translators even say the word occupy is do business. Do business until I come. Keep busy until I come. This is kind of like the original command to tend the garden and multiply. Remember when God says to Adam that I want you to tend it, just take care of it, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. This is all you got to do, Adam. I've, I've done all this construction. Now you're in charge of just taking care of it. And so we do the same. We tend and we multiply. I would add this. We tend and we multiply in a new garden. Right? Here's a microcosm of three years of John teaching. All right? In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. It's John 1. One of the last narrative moves that John makes is way up here in John chapter 19. When John becomes the only gospel writer to tell you that the cross and the resurrection happen in a garden, Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave that out. John has already opened his letter with a creation. So he closes the Jesus story with a garden. And in the next chapter, Mary Magdalene shows up and she sees Jesus outside the tomb. And supposing he was a gardener, she said to him, where have you taken his body? Mary Magdalene, John has Mary Magdalene nail it in John John 20. God creates a new creation. He dies in a garden and he raises in a new garden And the first revelation of a resurrected Jesus is he's a gardener because that's what he is. He's a gardener. He's putting the hands in the dirt of your life. And he's fertilizing the soil. And he's weeding out the junk that chokes you to death. And he's watering you with his word. And he's patiently waiting on all of the things that are going to come out of you and and be a part of you so that he can. So he can. We are created as his masterpiece. Created for good works so that he can harvest that which is beautiful in us so that what is beautiful in us can feed the world around us and be of benefit to others. That's a garden. So in a way, we're tending and we're multiplying. And this is important to me. We're tending and we're multiplying, not hoping to be delivered from the place, but to have God step into the place. Adam, tend this garden. Take care of this every day. And then what happens in the cool of every day? Who shows up? God. Every day. God walks in to what Adam is tending and talks with him and converses with him because it's what God does in his creation is he shows up with his creation to talk to us, to walk with us. The Genesis story takes a devilish Literally, a devilish left turn. And God has to give the prophetic announcement of Genesis 3.15. Okay, we're going to crush this. We're going to separate these two systems. And he's going to put everything under his feet. But the story, the story is set. The allegory is set for how God wanted it to be. Here's your garden. You tend it. I'll show up. Remember that. Here's your garden. You tend it. I'll show up. John recreates a garden, gives us Jesus. He's the gardener. He shows up. Jesus tells us, I'm going away, but I'm going to show up. And so we step into this place, hoping to have God step into this place, really to remove the veil from what we perceive to be the only reality, which is this world, this system, living, breathing, moving. We think this is it, but he's actually here, To show us things as they really are. Jesus stepping into who we are. Maybe this this helps. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. We We were in this. Brian reminded me before that this was last year. We were right here at this time of year. So Fresh, not really. It's a year old. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, having made known to us. And we're jumping into the middle of a conversation, as is obvious, but no time to do the whole thing. He's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, the fullness of the times, that's a man word, right? That's like whatever's coming. That like all of these times racked up on time. maybe it's not just this era, but it's another era and another era. And whatever those dispensation of those fullness of the times, that he might gather together in one, all things in Christ, both the things that are in heaven and which are on the earth, in him. And so the consummation of all things is for all things to be gathered together in Christ. So when I say we're waiting on, call it second coming, I don't really like the phrase second coming, but I'm, I'm trying to pay attention to the way the church likes to say things. And so the, the church, I don't always agree with them, but we like to say second coming. Oh, I'll, I'll say second coming. I'd rather just say his appearing, but second coming. Because I don't think there's just two. <laughs> but when we talk about it, And we're awaiting people get rid of the, we get out of here. Talk, get rid of the, he shows up as a general and bombs, the carpet bombs, the world and kills the innocent, get rid of things that a don't look like the Jesus that left, because if the Jesus that comes back would not be recognizable as the Jesus that left, how in the world did he go to heaven and change? If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he goes up for 2,000 years and then goes, eh, boy, this isn't working. You know, we're going to come back and do it the devil's way. You've got an antichrist on your hands. And so let's just dispense of the, he wants to come back to this garden and napalm it. So he's got to take us out of it so he can do it. We're already in the resurrected Christ. We're already in, the kingdom's already been put into the, the yeast is in the bread and he's already spreading his kingdom. And so what we wait for is the total consummation of all things, the gathering together of all things in Christ. And I want you to notice the gather talk because gather talk and taken talk are two different things. Okay. He gives a good contract. I don't want to stay here too long, but he gives a really good contrast. This is Matthew 24. Just remember this. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, "The son of man will ride the clouds and the angels will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Gather his elect. So what Christ started doing in his first advent, he's still doing. He's gathering all things in Christ. Things that are heaven and things that are on the earth. And Jesus, on his way into Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how often I would have brought you unto myself as a hen gathers or chicks, but you would not let me. Because gather talk is this. I like, to th- I like to see him putting his arms out. That's like a hen gathers. She takes those wings and she pulls them all up under her. So it's Jesus going, gather. And then he goes, the angels will gather my elect. And then he flips the story in Matthew 24. And he says, watch out. Two of you are going to be in working at the mill. One's going to be taken. The other one's going to be left. Two of you be in a bed. One's going to be taken. The other one's going to be left. And we insert it because we forgot he's a gatherer, not a taker. So we inserted that Jesus is going to come and take out his people. No. The taking was going to happen at the hands of the only thing that knows how to take what isn't it. Thieves take. Rome's going to come in. Jesus has said, when it's compassed about with armies, this is what you're going to see. And they're going to come in and they're going to take. So you don't want to be the one taken. You want to be the one left behind in that story, which is in your past anyway. That's a prophecy of the fall of the temple. He's not a taker. He's a gatherer because he's a gardener. He gathers the vegetables. He doesn't take them. He doesn't rip the plant out of the ground to take them. He gathers them carefully. He knows how to harvest. So there's a consummation of all things, and we wait for it. What's it look like? Hmm, it's a good question. Maybe it's the wrong question. Because, see, we think it's going to be exactly like things in the natural. But what we're having, what we're seeing in, in the consummation of all things is that which is actually the shadow being swallowed up by that which is actually real. Guess which one's which? This is the shadow He's eternal. So, this gets swallowed up of what is real. This gets gathered into Him. And you don't have to worry about that because He's given you confidence in the day of judgment. Because perfect love casts out fear. So, why are you afraid? And your confidence is that God is love. Fear involves punishment. You have no need for punishment, you're in Christ. And therefore, you realize that as he is, 1 John 4 says, as he is, so are you in this world. And so I anxiously await the consummation of all things, apocatostasis, the restoration of everything. So I firmly believe in the return of Jesus. I just, I don't, I probably don't believe it in the way, I know I don't believe it in the way I used to. I probably don't believe it in the way every other Christian or many other Christians believe it but I try to hold a position that is actually closer to the position of the church of of the past 20 centuries. And that is that we believe Jesus comes to put everything under his feet, put an end to death and restore all things. That what he does is he swallows up the mortal with the immortal, that this gets swallowed up into who he is. This gets gathered into who he is. My ultimate hope is that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. It was the Old Testament hope. It was the New Testament. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament say that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. The big question is not whether every knee and... The big question as far as I can see it is not will every knee bow and every tongue confess. The big question is, is will he have to bust kneecaps to get people to bow? Or will he win us with his love? Will he gather us unto himself as all things in Christ? To me, the question is not, will every knee bow and every tongue confess? I consider that a done deal. So the question is, how will he get there? Well, I think it's got to look like Jesus. And we've got to be very careful that we haven't given Jesus a nightstick and that at the end of the game, if all else fails, he'll bust your kneecaps. Because if that's the Jesus, if that is in his tool bag, then maybe it's in his tool bag for you that he will get you to do what he wants you to do, but he will break you to do it. And there's a lot of people believe that there's a lot of people believe that and you say, well, you're a heretic for thinking otherwise. I don't get quite as upset anymore about being a heretic in regards to the way people say you're a heretic. Cause I've learned that everyone's a heretic to somebody. That's a straight up fact, by the way, every single person, is a heretic to somebody else. You just got to dig deep enough and you're going to find somebody that goes, well, that's heretical. I don't want anything to do with that. So I'm not so worried about, I do, I want to be, I am striving in this season of my life to get closer to where the church has been for 20 centuries. Why? Because I got a great cloud of witnesses. It's it's like a great cloud of witnesses that have vetted a lot of stuff before me. And argued out and wrestled out a lot of things. I can go, I might have a different idea about this or that. But let's pay attention to these things. It doesn't mean it's all... It doesn't mean we, we adhere to every, every dot, every T cross. Okay. One last thought. This is Cyril of Jerusalem. Cyril of Jerusalem was a theologian of the 4th century. Goes on to be a bishop. Um, we're not, when we read these old quotes, we're not reading... Yeah, no, we're not reading Scripture what we're doing is we're getting close to people who were closer to the original than we were. Who, and we're looking at their ideas. And I thank God they wrote them down and that people preserve them. Yeah. Um, this was a long one. And when it's translated to English, the English translators love commas and semicolons and colons. So this has an absolute cornucopia <laughs> of punctuation. But I hope you can get past that. And, and pay attention to the waiting that Cyril talks about. It's a big one. We preach not one advent only of Christ, but a second also, far more glorious than the former. For the former gave a view of his patience, but the latter brings with it the crown of a divine kingdom. For all things, for the most part, are twofold in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a twofold generation. One is of God before the ages, and one is of a virgin at the close of the ages. His descents are twofold. Descent. One is the unobserved, like rain on a fleece. And the second is His open coming, which is to be. In His former advent, He was wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger. In His second, He covers Himself with light as with a garment. In His first coming, He endured the cross, despising shame. In His second, He comes, attended by a host of angels, receiving glory. We rest not upon his first advent only, but we look also for his second. I like this last sentence. And as at his first coming, we said, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So will we repeat the same at his second coming that when with angels, we meet our master, we may worship him and say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Good job, Cyril. Let's wait for it. That's what we're doing. But we're not just sitting. We're not begging to get out. We're working to occupy. Carry about business. And continue to care about business. Proclaiming the kingdom. I was doing a podcast today. Jesus has just been healing all day long, all night long. He's tired, he tries to steal away, the crowd won't let him. And Jesus says, then you gotta let me go. he you gotta let me go to the next town because it's for this purpose that I came, to preach the kingdom. And it's cool to me. Jesus, he can heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils. Because he goes, I says, this is why I'm here, to proclaim the kingdom's arrived. So even though you don't see it all in its fullness, it's okay. You're, we're patient people. Wait for it. The kingdom's advancing. Stop saying the world's going hell in a handbasket. You're insulting the kingdom. The garden's not, not got to burn up before the gardener shows The gardener hasn't left. He's just slipped into the spirit so that he can stand right here beside you so that wherever you go, he goes. This is why Paul said to the Ephesians, we are seated together with him in heavenly places. That's not over there. That's right here. Where's the heavenly places? This is a biggie. I think we covered this in our Ephesians study, but let me say it again. Where are the heavenly places? We've been made to sit together with Him in heavenly places. Where's that? Wherever you are. This right here is a heavenly place. Wherever you step your foot is a heavenly place because you carry the kingdom with you. All we're asking in the arrival of Jesus is the moment when He brings out what is real And everything that is not real vanishes. I don't know how he does it. I know he does it because he has to gather all things into himself. Because he's the centerpiece of the whole universe. It's all held together in him. Everything is gravitating towards him. That's great news to me. We wait for it. Let's pray. Thanks for the word, Father. Thank you, thank you for this season of Advent. Over these next few weeks, we get to, with our brothers and sisters of the church around the world, we get to stop and slow way down and get patient and anticipate Jesus, anticipate. And we get to look over these next few weeks with what it, would, what it looks like through the prophetic lens of waiting on Jesus to arrive in that manger. And then every week we get to do that, we should also realize that we're still waiting on the full consummation of all things And that we're carrying on tending the garden in the meantime. Believing that you walk with us and talk with us. In our patience we possess our souls. Teach us to wait for it. Whatever it might be. Thank you Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.